Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith. And on the precipice of a new year, I'm with the visionary writer, architect and philosopher, Carolyn Steele, whose book Zootopia was one of 2020's most important reads and my book of the year. The, the thing that strikes me so powerfully and that's been growing as a feeling I've had for really many years is that we've forgotten how to ask the big questions. You know, we're just blindly ploughing ahead, kind of, ooh, we, you know, now we've got 5G or, you know, now we've got kind of electric or driverless cars, woo, you know, and sort of without thinking, well, why are we doing all of this? And, you know, is it making us any happier? She told me why food means so much to an architect. Well, I spent about seven years researching my first book, Hungry City, when I was looking at the way cities have been fed through history and how that's sort of shaped Western civilization. And I just realised that food is this extraordinarily vast force shaping kind of everything in our world. So it's not just the landscape or farmland, it's our bodies, our minds, our politics, our economics, our cities, our homes, our habits, you know. And and I just thought it's really weird that I've never realised this before. Um, and I often say food is too big to see because it's everywhere. You know, we literally wouldn't be here without it, of course. You know, we are made of the atoms consisting of the meals that we've previously eaten, you know. So I, it, to, to see food, to see it as an entity shaping our world is a bit like... You know, you have to step outside yourself and kind of, you know, it's almost like a sort of um, a double take experience, but it's remarkably powerful when you do it. It is. And what you've done is just that, really. You've stepped outside and you've taken us back in time to look at how we were, how we became shaped by food or how the world became shaped by food, but also how we lost our sense of what it's worth. And your four food moments really kind of take us through that. It's an enormous book. It's an enormous subject. I absolutely loved it. I have to say Hungry City, when I read it back in 2008, changed my world then. I It changed everything about the way I think about food and everything I've wow. done since. I mean, it really mm. was that powerful. So I'm thrilled to be talking to you uh, about Zootopia <laughs> because actually you've come up with the answer with Zootopia. Zootopia is a place uh, which you're going to take us through, uh, you're going to describe in your second moment. But first of all, I mean, it was, it's very interesting. I love the fo- food programs uh, version of Zootopia, uh, <laughs> where Sheila Dillon imagines Britain 10 years after COVID, through COVID, through the worst recession we've ever had, where Carolyn Steele is prime minister <laughs> and food is at the centre of everything. That was fun. I have to give Emma Weatherall, the producer on that program, a shout out because it was actually her idea to set it in the future, which I thought was utterly brilliant. And I thoroughly it was enjoyed. Brilliant. I loved. Yeah. I loved the idea of Sheila Dillon walking down through Whitehall to see you in Downing Street, <laughs> through through an orchard of trees and into Downing Street, where hops, you know, threaded through the, the railings outside <laughs> Downing Street. Absolutely brilliant. Is that kind of the vision of your future? Is that what Zootopia looks like? Well, actually, yes. And I mean, interestingly, another um, big inspiration for that programme, which we kind of imagined together, really, um, was William Morris's News from Nowhere, uh, where indeed he does imagine, you know, Trafalgar Square kind of full of fruit trees. And it's, it's a very, very wonderful vision. And I remember being very struck by that when I when I read it, again, when I was researching Hungry City and just thinking, actually, you know, rethinking the city through food and actually understanding that... 
I mean, I love using Aristotle's term political animals that he uses to describe the human because it, it it's, expresses an inherent duality that we have. You know, we're political, which means we need to be together in society, which is why indeed we live in cities. But we're also animals. So we, we need nature. You know, we need the natural world. And I think, you know, what I call the urban paradox is the question of, you know, how you bring those two worlds together. And I think for at least the last 250 years, I mean, since industrialization, certainly in the UK, we've actually forgotten that it's really important to maintain that balance between the city and the countryside or between society and nature. So really thinking through food, you know, Sitopia, as I call it is, which is, I, I'm sure, you know, your listeners will be interested to hear where that word came from. But you know, it means literally food place. And it comes from the Greek sitos for food and topos for place playing on the idea of utopia and dystopia, but it is a made-up word by Carolyn Steele. It is indeed a made-up word, which my agent was quite surprised to discover, by the way. He thought it was real for, for, for a few years, um, which, which I quite liked, actually. But um, no, I mean, I, I think f- the, the reason I'm so excited you know, and passionate about food as a way of seeing the world, which is essentially what Zootopia is, is that food is not only as I say, this great invisible force shaping our world, but also the most important entity, if you like, that sits at the nexus between our two most important sets of relationships, i.e. our relationships with one another and also our relationships with nature. And so, you know, thinking through food immediately makes you question, well... You know, why do we live in these vast metropolitan blobs, you know, without any nature nearby? And actually, it turns out that's a very, a very typical utopian question is, you know, what, how do you balance city and country? You know, so the Greeks did it. Um, Thomas More did it. Ebenezer Howard did it with his garden cities. And, you know, I think it's an eternal theme, really. And I think, you know, as we enter what I call the neo-geographical age, i.e. an age when we can no longer take nature for granted anymore, um, it's a really, really important question to ask. Yes. And talking of ages, you you, you refer to the Anthropocene, um, the first era where the actions of man have had a terrible impact on what's happening with the planet. And this is the main line in your book isn't it the 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 loss of connection that we have with food is having a huge impact on on the planet we don't have a lot of time Mm. and assessing that and and actually applying ourselves to doing something about it is absolutely essential well let's go into your first food moment because that's what this is about this is why you wrote the book in the first place the kind of encounter with the shell executive on the beanbags yes this is rather extraordinary i mean this actually wasn't the reason why i wrote the book but it, it it did sort of solidify for me why it was so necessary to write it. It got you thinking. It did. Basically, the scene is, I've been to a TED conference. I mean, actually, I wasn't speaking at this one, but I was invited to go as a sort of TED ambassador, rather remarkably. So I'd been spending the week just listening to all these extraordinary ideas and projects and just really being wowed. And it's exhausting, you know, five days of that is about much as the human body can take. So I was slumped on a beanbag in the foyer and this very, very tall Dutchman approached me. Um, Well, average height for a Dutchman probably, but anyway, very tall, thin man, uh, looking very, very wired and sort of, you know, nervy. And he basically said, and I won't attempt the accent, but, you know, he said, 
you know, let me introduce myself. I'm a senior executive at Shell. I have millions of, of, of you know, pounds to spend, um, but I'm looking for ideas. And I've been here all week and I haven't heard a single thing, you know, that, that strikes me as a good idea. And I thought this is a bit odd. Anyway, um, he plonked himself down next to me and I sort of thought, you know, well, what ideas do I have? And I thought... The, the thing that strikes me so powerfully and that's been growing as a feeling I've had for really many years is that we've forgotten how to ask the big questions. You know, we're just blindly ploughing ahead kind of, oh, you know, now we've got 5G or, you know, now we've got kind of electric or driverless cars, woo, you know, and sort of without thinking, well, why are we doing all of this? And, you know, is it making us any happier? Um, and is it helping us to lead good lives? So I sort of said to him, actually, I think what we most need now is philosophy. We have a philosophy deficit. We've just forgotten how to ask the big questions. And I'll never forget the sort of, I mean, watching his face, as I said, this was like watching kind of weather systems passing over a landscape. You know, he went from sort of incredulity to puzzlement to ultimately to something approaching anger. You know, the sort of bolt stood out on the side of his neck and he said, we don't have time for that. There are seven billion on the planet. We are running out of resources, you know. And I thought, wow, this is just so interesting. You know, he he's he wanted me to say algae. You know, that's what he wanted. He wanted me to have the silver bullet idea that was going to solve everything. You know, seaweed, you know, kind of whatever is going to be hydrogen. (laughs) And I just, you know, and so so that became, in a way, something key to the book. And it, it is key to why I think food is such a wonderful medium for, you know, addressing the enormous challenges that we face at the moment is that, it's complex. It's as complex as life itself. And it includes the human and the messy and the chaotic and the provisional. You know, and it's not just this shiny silver bullet idea, which is going to solve everything. And, and that is key to my philosophy. And, and the reason why I believe food is so necessary, because it permits us to ask the big questions, which is, is so necessary now. And, and in many ways, a lot of people will have a lot of uh, empathy with your Dutchman uh, because most of us want technology to fix it. He had the money and he had the in, in, mm. incentive to, to fit. He had the, he'd been given carte blanche to go off and find the answers and mm. invest. And a lot of people are waiting for technology to fix everything. Coronavirus, for example, vaccine. Hooray. That's the end of that. We don't no. have to think about that anymore. You know, someone's going to save the planet. We don't have to give up junk food. We don't have to give up junk lifestyles. Somebody will sort it out. We don't have to worry about that. That's not the point. No. Is it? For you, that's not the point. It's about unpicking it and linking it to the point of at which we lost our connection with who we yeah. are, which is why we're making the mistakes. Yeah. The second food moment um, is about Cytopia itself. And it outlines the core idea of your book. This is a place where we land after centuries of getting it wrong. Some centuries of getting it right. A century of getting it right, maybe? Half a century of getting it right? A couple of hundred well, years? How, how, how long did we have it right? Well, we've all, this is the thing I, that, that I find myself often saying in lectures, you know, that the problem of how to eat is basically how we evolved as a species, you know, the shared problem of how to eat. Of course, it's a problem that all living creatures share, you know, sort of they, they, they get up in the morning or they sort of pull, pullulate if they're an amoeba, but they still have to take on nutrients somehow, you know. So, I mean, as humans, I think, you know, what distinguishes us and is so interesting is that, 
you know, the discovery, the control of fire and the cooking of food led to sort of the division of labour. You know, I often say you hunt, I cook is the kind of oldest social contract in, in history. Um, but, you know, it basically meant that our ancestors who were hunter-gatherers, you know, they had this thing at the end of the day, which was the product of all their labours. And the women had stayed in camp and collected tubers and and cooked them and the men had gone off and maybe you know caught a deer or maybe not so there was a kind of you know literally a moving feast in the evening um which was the shared meal and what i find really fascinating about hunter-gatherer societies is that you know they, they we learned to share food equitably you know so everyone was happy and everybody felt like they had the right stuff to eat and it's it's the oldest and the most effective economy we've ever invented and you know i think we've evolved from that you know sort of other technologies farming you know combustion engines kind of chemical fertilizers and so on and we're all the time, we, we, and now, of course, you know, making protein from, from air. Um, you know, so we keep thinking that with greater technology, we're getting better and better at feeding ourselves without realising that every time you sort of make one of these leaps, technological leaps, you're actually leaving something behind. You know, so, for example... You know, Aboriginal Australians lived for 50,000 years continuously in the landscape incredibly successfully and very happily, it would appear. You know, I mean, it's the longest civilization in history. So kind of, I can't see anything wrong with it. It's actually remarkably sophisticated and, and crucially is equitable and, res- and sustainable. The two things that we keep wittering on about now, you know, the things we, we long to, you know, to achieve. So, you know, for me, the big realisation is that we haven't solved the problem of how to eat. We will never solve it. It's not a solvable thing. It's actually the experience of, of, of trying to eat well and trying to live well are more or less synonymous. And that is what makes it worth getting up in the morning is that it's a sort of ongoing struggle. It's actually what gives life meaning. You know, and we still, I mean, it's so interesting. Again, you mentioned COVID, you know, all this discussion of can we save Christmas? You know, you kind of think, well, why is it so fundamental that, you know, this one day in the year, every, everybody sort of absolutely feels they have to sort of be with family and friends and so on. And to me, that is fundamental because it, well, I'll come on to talk about that in another food moment. But, you know, we we it, it's important to recognize that the act of eating like the act of living is an ongoing negotiation with with the people and the non-humans the living creatures that we with whom we share the planet and that is the power of the meal and and so it's not a question of we got it right and then we got it wrong or something it's just that you know there have been times in our history when we've been really successful at living in balance with nature and with each other and that those are two critical things and we've totally forgotten how to do both at the moment and that's what we've got to get back to yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose a lot of people would say, well, actually, it was about freeing ourselves from the process of producing our food. It was freeing ourselves to, for thinking, actually, mm. you know, that you, the philosopher, surely you would be uh, expounding the, the, the joys of, of thinking and not spending all your day uh, digging the, the ground. And uh, I mean, Well, actually, I, digging the ground is a fantastically good time to meditate. Well, it is, absolutely. But we only realise that now in retrospect as we're coming back to doing, you know, planting our own vegetable gardens and yep. tilling our allotments or rather not tilling the land in order to save the soil. You know, we now know that tilling is not a great mm. thing. We're going back to rewilding. We're, we're going back in many ways to, to the places where we, where we made those mistakes. We are trying to find purpose in what we do. Uh, for me, that the moment where we became, where we lost our connection, 
connection was all around the Industrial Revolution, mm. also slightly earlier when we lost our commons, our small holdings, our, our land, yeah. and we moved into the cities as part of the Industrial Revolution. Um, what do you think about the monasteries? What do you think about the 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 changing of our religion? Because pre-monasteries, pre the dissolution of the monasteries, we ate well, we looked after each other, we gave alms to passing travellers who brought wonderful foods with us, and we ate and drank in a very hospitable way with them. Post-monasteries, we had taverns where we served gruel and gave them a very uncomfortable bed and were not very hospitable at all. I wonder if that's the moment where we lost our way and we became Protestant. Well, I mean, I think... You know, mo- monasteries are critical in sort of keeping what you might call sort of the ancient sort of traditions of civility alive tr- during a long period when cities barely existed. So, I mean, it's very interesting that, you know, in Western civilization, um, after the fall of Rome, there's about a thousand years when cities aren't really how people live. And uh, basically people lead a, you know, the so-called barbarians um, lead, and who of course weren't nearly as barbarian as they made out to be, but nevertheless, you know, they led a peripatetic existence. And actually it was the monasteries, as you say, who kept some semblance of a settled life going. And also, yes, I mean, this kind of order that's very much to do with kind of, you know, the planetary rotations of, you know, religious seasons being linked to kind of what was growing and and you know a, a sort of spiritual idea of what it meant to dwell on the planet so you know I, I think that's very fundamental and I think of course it's still bound up with our religious festivals now I mean we haven't completely lost it you know Easter and Christmas are both pagan festivals to do with agricultural seasons that have been Christianized, you know and and we still need to feel the rhythms of the planet in that way and you know I, I think that's fundamental to our sense of well-being and you know I mean again I don't know why we keep coming back to Christmas but you know I think that that need to sort of feel that we're all doing the same thing at the same time and it's somehow in rhythm with the planet is a very very essential you know requirement it's something that sort of really sort of grounds us yeah. in the world and, and it's probably your answer to the uh, the covid question you know why christmas why are we all so mm. so desperate to, to spend christmas together and maybe there is that sort of that ritual maybe it is that desperate sort of primeval need for ritual basically it's one of the things that industrialization has obscured is the fact that we live on on a revolving planet and a rotating planet and a planet that's hurtling through space at a vast vast you know numbers of miles an hour and you know i think it's really fundamental to our sense of well-being that we 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 pause and acknowledge that basically and in the days when we used to live on the land that was a natural thing to do because basically you kind of followed followed the seasons you know and nature itself you know grows and dies every year and it's very very sort of bound up in our in our literally in our bodies and our our rhythms our circadian rhythms and so on that we follow that cycle yeah, absolutely it is ultimately about value isn't it you say we live in a world which it's just food food shape but it's value that is lost and your third food moment really goes into where we've lost our sense of value we've even lost the idea of what epicureanism actually means yes i mean it's quite interesting if you read epicurus i mean you know given that our word epicureanism tends to conjure up images of somebody in a kind of tuxedo kind of you know eating sort of I don't know, beef tornadoss or it too much. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, probably French food, mostly. Um, uh, delicious French food. Um, he was actually an ascetic. 
So his theory was that if you're really, really thirsty, um, what your body wants is a glass of water. And the pleasure of satisfying thirst is so intense. And we can all relate to this. I'm sure we've all been on long walks in the summer and got really, really thirsty. And you, you're just gagging for a glass of water. You're not gagging for Chateau Nerve de Pap. You're gagging for a glass of water. And he says the pleasure that we get from drinking that glass of water, in other words, insating thirst, is as intense as pleasure gets. And all the rest is just dancing around the edge. And and the other really interesting thing that he says is that if we get too used to fancy foods, um, then our body sort of adjusts and then we, we start to lose the, the simple pleasure of dress, drinking a glass of water because we kind of go, where's my... Where is my chateau enough to pack? So it's all about also regulation, which is a very Greek idea, you know, maiden aguns, you know, nothing in excess. And of course, again, you know, that's something that, you know, I mean, flick open the pages of any kind of food supplement in any Sunday newspaper and you'll find literally five articles on the precise subject, you know, of how do we reach this kind of balance in our bodies and in our lives? So Epicurus was way ahead of the game on this stuff. He was. So the question, what is a good life? You know, I mean, I think there are two very obvious answers to that. The first is, you know, a happy life. And of course, we know how ephemeral that is. Um, And the second one is a meaningful life. You know, one where you sort of, you go to bed at night, you feel I've actually done something worthwhile during the day. Now, what's interesting is what's the most meaningful thing in life? Well, you could say life itself, the mere fact of living, you know, because to be simply conscious and human is a paradox because we're here, you know, we've got a brain and there seems to be this extraordinary world out there. We don't know why, you know, uh, well, I certainly don't know why. Um, And so basically, uh, it's kind of quite refreshing to just pay attention to the stuff that you have to do. And eating is obviously one of the key things that we have to do every day because you don't have to sort of question why we need to eat. You you can just go with the fact that we do need to eat and that in itself is profoundly meaningful. And this is really... Um, one of Epicurus's great insights, I think, is that, you know, getting joy out of the necessary is as good as it gets, basically. So it, it's not an accident, for example, that, you know, we our bodies are wired to enjoy eating. Why? Because we have to eat, you know, so our bodies reward us for doing what's necessary. I mean, this is kind of like a no-brainer. And when you talk about value, I mean, it's really important for me to say that where we've gone wrong, and you, it comes back to what you were saying earlier on, you were talking about the fact that, oh, it's about people not wanting to have to farm anymore. You're absolutely right. This was seen as a punishment, ironically, because actually being a hunter-gatherer was rather fabulous and people resented having to kind of plough the land when they used to just pick, you know, fruit off trees. Um, but, you know, the value of food is something, I think it's got bound up in this idea that, you know, the need to eat is a tedious task and it wouldn't it be lovely if we didn't have to worry about it anymore whereas actually we need to flip that on our head and say the need to eat is actually a great blessing because it gives structure to our to our, to our lives and to our days and to our relationships with people and with nature and it's literally what kind of ties us to the world and and gives everything meaning and and you know to disrespect food to to try and treat it as cheap is to literally to devalue life because food is life. It's living things that we kill so we can live. So so these are all sort of things that kind of, as it were, stick an enormous pin in the balloon of industrial capitalism, if yeah. you like, because it brings it back down to something really fundamental and basic. Cheap food is possibly the, the reason why we are facing an imminent crisis because it is all about losing our value 
for our food, but also for ourselves, that we will feed ourselves food that isn't good for us, that is too much for us and comes from dubious uh, Mm. origins. In Cytopia, it has a very different meaning, doesn't it? It has a very different value. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the invention of cheap food, which is an invention of industrialisation, and it really starts in Chicago, and it's absolutely fascinating to trace it. You know, it basically comes with the railways and the ability for the first time to sort of, you know, transport food over large distances cheaply. Um, And so you got a grain glut, and that was then fed to animals. Then you got sort of quote-unquote cheap meat. Of course, the reality is cheap food doesn't exist. Um, It's it's an illusion that's being created by sort of deciding to let all the externalities exist elsewhere in the accounting system. So climate change, deforestation, soil degradation, all all the rest of it is accounted for elsewhere. Um, And yes, I mean, what I'm arguing is that we live in a food-shaped world. So if we don't value food, we live in a a bad Cytopia, if you like, which of course is is precisely the crisis that we're facing now. I mean, you know, COVID itself, of course, is is an outcome of reduced biodiversity and encroaching into wilderness where we really didn't ought to be. Um, So if we value food again, then everything everything changes. Because if you imagine internalising the true cost of, shall we say, industrially produced livestock, well, we can't afford it. It becomes unaffordable. And it is unaffordable, and we have to stop producing meat in that way. So that immediately goes out the window. And then you look at the kind of locally produced artisanal organic stuff from down the road, and you think, wow, that's an amazing bargain. Because actually all the true costs of the food are already embedded in it, you know, and and, and so that is the true cost of food. So it, what are we going to do if, if, you know, my metaphor for a good society is one in which everybody eats well, how do we get there? Well, okay, imagine sort of this wonderful table where we're all sitting around together, sharing wonderfully as our ancestors did and all eating well. Everything else has to change. <laughs> you know, you actually need land reform, you need wealth de- redistribution, you need taxation that kind of, you know, punishes uh, the polluters, and actually you need sort of minimum wages that it means that people can afford the, the food. It's a total restructure of society, but it's actually the one that we need to make. So, you know, food leads you there. You know, if you look at the landscapes where good food is produced, you know, they are self-sustaining because farmers are working with the soil and they're working with natural ecosystems. You know, and of course, animals belong in that. You know, animals do not belong in gulags being fed on grain. They belong in the land, you know, eating and fertilising the crops and being rotated just as, you know, nature does it, as it were. Um, And of course, you know, again, the ideal habitat for political animals like us is to, to have society and nature close to hand. So it's also a philosophy that shows you that you need to bring city and country closer together, society and nature closer together. And of course, there's a multiplicity of ways you can do that. That brings us to your final food moment, the mundane. Now, I had never Mm. thought about the dual meaning of this word. Do tell. I mean, this was also a huge revelation for me. And interestingly, this predated my my food journey. So I, I this came... Many, many years ago, when I was struggling to understand why it was that, you know, as an architect, which is my my training and my profession, 
uh, I, I found that, you know, architects, architectural discourse continually somehow missed the mark. And I was looking for the missing thing. And to cut a very long short story short, I decided the missing thing was human life. Um, and I did a long study in Rome, actually, um, of a sort of just an area of, of the city over 2000 years, looking at how people just lived ordinary lives, you know, so how were they born? How do they get married? How do they buy food? What do they do for a job? How do they die? And so on. And it struck me really as really interesting that nobody bothered to record the everyday stuff that they did because because that wasn't interesting to them. All they said was, you know, all you could see was when a war got waged or when an emperor died or something like that. Then that was massively recorded. And I thought, but actually the interesting stuff is the everyday stuff. And and that was when I sort of, around about that time, I just, I don't know, I was looking up the word mundane in the dictionary and I suddenly, it, it hit me. This is weird. You know, mundane, which we take to mean boring and routine and humdrum, actually means cosmic of the universe, you know, because its root is mundus, the Latin mundus. And that was a massive revelation for me because I thought, actually, the stuff that really matters is the stuff we can't see because it's so embedded in our in our lives that it is us. And and that was the big revelation. And by the way, I chose the market area of Rome, of course, because intuitively, this is about five years before I had my big food light bulb moment. But, you know, intuitively, I knew, well, if you want to look for everyday life, where is it going to be? Where food is being exchanged? So so it all kind of came together for me in that way. Yeah, that made me very teary, actually, mm. that revelation. Mm. It, it feels such a disruption. You know, that the, the, we have so lost our way and our planet is deeply, deeply in crisis. And it's because we just don't look what's under our nose and, and we've lost our sense of value. Exactly. We've lost our sense of time as well. And you talk about this in this last food moment. I speak to hundreds of food writers and chefs and I hear so much about the time yeah and it does my head in we've still got 24 hours a day we've still got seven days a week we have to cook much much more quickly we have to you know batch cooking of of course is really really important part of organizing a day but what's where do we lose our idea of time well, I mean, it's industrialization and capitalism, of course, you know, and, and I mean, it is utterly, utterly mad, the place you've got to. And I think COVID's been such a big wake-up call for people because they've actually sort of had all this time at home. And I do realise some people have had a really hideous lockdown and it hasn't been great for everyone. But for a really big chunk of people, they've suddenly gone, hang on. Why was I kind of, you know, running around like a hamster in a wheel and spending four hours a day in a car, you know, in a kind of tin can going to the city and back when I could just be here in my pyjamas, spending time with my family, baking bread, growing food? You know, I mean, it's been such a revelation to people. And only 7% of British people want life to go back the way it was before, which doesn't surprise me at all. So, yes, I think it's as fundamental to our sense of well-being and home to live in time, as I say in the book, as it is to live in a place. It's it's the same thing. And what is a good life? You know, it's certainly not running around trying to get rich and then rewarding yourself with lots of alcohol and holidays. You know, that is not a good life. You know, a good life is actually, and it's very epicurean. It's one, it's the kind of stuff that everybody want, wishes they'd done more of on their deathbed. 
you know, spend time with the people they love, have beautiful access to nature, you know, just see that cherry blossom one more time, have a hug from my grandchildren, whatever it is. That is the stuff that matters. And, you know, our whole, you know, society for the last 150, 200 years, while we've been burning fossil fuels, has been predicated on getting rich and that being a good life. And it's just, um, it's bullshit. <laughs> doesn't make you happy and we it's time for a reset and and this is why i actually i'm i'm very excited by covid as well as obviously acknowledging it's a massive catastrophe i think it's the best opportunity we're ever going to have to sort of say hang on a minute we were going in the wrong direction and covid is a symptom of that and this is an amazing opportunity to rethink what a good life is, where we're going, how we want to live. And food has to be at the centre of that because food is at the centre of life, whether we like it or not. Anthropause. I love that term. Um, and, and, <laughs> and even the politicians are using the word reset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this book has done extremely well, hasn't it? It has hit a nerve. It has arrived absolutely at the right time. Well, we really, really need this book. Mm. What is the feedback that you're getting? Are you getting a sense of people saying, well, wouldn't it be lovely, wouldn't it? These philosophers, they come up with great ideas, but hey, let's get back to building technology and no. technological answers. It's not, is it? No, I'm not. I'm getting people saying, can you please actually go to number 10 and do this? Yeah. I mean, seriously, you know, I mean, it was, it was, and it's very, very interesting. It is doable. You know, it just requires amazing political courage and a complete cultural shift and you know I, I think everyone is ready for it and if our esteemed leaders could only stop kind of you know reading from the cliche sheet in front of them and actually think you know wh what are we trying to achieve here you know instead of this kind of global trading Britain and all this utter rubbish yeah. just going well look people are actually saying they want more of what lockdown gives them yeah. how can we make that happen oh actually it's quite doable oh gosh sort of 60 percent of londoners now want to live outside london Ooh, that was that's interesting well, what can we do with this you know it's it, it's happening the reset is already happening. So, you know, any politician with any kind of NASA tool will be sort of saying, oh, let's let's go with that flow and let's create a vision of how we can make this happen. And it's win-win. So, no, I mean, I, it feels very, very doable and real to me, actually. It just requires a, a sort of a, an inner re an ease, a reset between our ears, in essence. Yeah. Um, and I think people who read Zootopia are, are finding that, you know, that they're literally coming out going, let's make this real which yeah. is very exciting did you send it to your dutchman <laughs> do you know i actually don't know who he is it's really weird i mean i didn't well, get his name it was out. just it was this kind of weird moment on a beanbag you know kind of 10 years ago and uh no i should send it to him actually i should find out who he is um i might pursue that as a good yeah. idea jilly <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can buy Cytopia and all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter for loads more stuff happening in the new year, including news of Cooking the Books, The Retreats, where I'm hoping that Carolyn will join us in a COVID-free summer. I'll be back in the new year with the biggest selling book phenomenon since records began, Pinch of Nom. Happy New Year. 